you'll stand for the reading of Holy Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to reflect upon God's word, let's pray for his help. Almighty God, we're thankful for the deposit that you've left us of your inspired revelation. And we come to this in many ways, classic passage about the Lord Jesus and his work. And we ask uh, that even though we have uh, considered this passage and heard about it well, even uh, relatively, relatively recently, we ask that you would teach us freshly from it. And we're thankful for the deposit that you've left of faithful interpretation of Scripture. We think, especially in this moment of the Apostles' Creed, this digest of the whole summary of the story of Scripture, the the narrative that it tells of what you are doing throughout history. And so as we come to this important passage and this important line of the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus Christ is your only begotten Son, our Lord, teach us that we as Christians might know more about the Savior whose name we bear, the Lord Christ. 
overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, they are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, The broader American posture is dominated by pragmatism. And I don't think I have to really provide examples of that. Just, it's kind of obvious that our biggest question for whether or not we ought to learn something is, does it work? Does it do something for me? We need ideas even to function, to achieve something for us, to think that they are worthy of our attention. A concept on its own doesn't do it for us. And at times, we can treat the Christian faith in similar fashion. Having little patience for things like doctrine that does not have an immediately obvious way of turning into concrete action. We turn Christianity into merely a motivational tool or a set of duties when we ignore our religious teaching, dare I say theological heritage, that has so greatly characterized the Christian faith across the millennia. And yet, even as there's kind of an implied criticism in that, theology does always come home to roost in real-life significance. It may not be practical action, which may frustrate some people. I, I actually don't have a good idea of how I can take many of Scripture's teachings and, and tell you how it might help you build a rocking chair or how it might inform the, the true mechanics of accounting, that sort of thing. But it does shape our lives in the way that we think about the world, our interpretation of others, and how we conduct ourselves. And the irony in everything we've been talking about so far is that sometimes a rich idea has the most practical mileage. People do run out of steam when all they have is a to-do list. Eventually, we fizzle. We need motivation, but not just the kind of, well, get it done and then it's done motivation. We need foundation for our actions. We are not mere animals who act on instinct, which means people hardly do what is just in front of them. We process life and we act out of values, concerns, joys, and reasons. And as we work through the Apostles' Creed, we come to the line that Jesus Christ is his, meaning the Father's, the Father's only begotten Son, our Lord. We've thought about how the true God is triune, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And 
we have thought about how they exist eternally in the Godhead. And when we come to think about Jesus Christ, God the Son, we also have to think about his incarnation. Namely, how this eternal person stepped into history by assuming a true human nature to his divine person. Coming in our likeness to fulfill everything required for our salvation. And so in this sermon, we're thinking about the Son's incarnation. Now, when we reflect on matters like God the Son's incarnation, we, we have to realize we're beyond the limits of our minds to comprehend this sort of idea entirely. We are in the realm of, well, learning what the scripture reveals and trusting the grammar of the faith that's been handed to us through the ages. And that is much the purpose of, of this whole series, is to introduce or, or to firm up our understanding of how Christians talk about these highest realities. And so we're going to think about how Jesus Christ is both truly God and truly man. And we're going to consider how God the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, yet assumed our nature to become our Lord in a new and additional sense to his natural lordship over us according to his deity. And so our main point is that Christ's incarnation shows God's love and teaches us humility. Christ's incarnation shows God's love and teaches us humility. And our three points are natures, nurture, and nourishes. So first, let's think about natures. Um, when I was in seminary, I would try to go to the, to the presbytery meetings best I could, uh, especially to watch the, the theological exams really in preparation for, to take my own, right? You, you want to know what are people likely going to ask, what's this kind of like, what should I expect coming my way? And I, and I remember one candidate who had already been a, a pastor for some time in another non-reformed denomination was asked, and I, and I think that they, they thought this was a softball, uh, you know, slow and right down the middle across the plate, uh, they asked the question, how many natures does Christ have? And he replied, you know, that's a good question. I've never thought about that. Now, often, perhaps shamefully, uh, presbyters will work on other things as they participate, usually having their computers open, kind of putting finishing touches on the sermon or something for the next day, and, and in this case, you kind of saw things slow down, and every laptop closed, 
and every attention got laser focused on this fellow, which was bad news for him. Now, why would that answer prompt such devoted attention from everyone in the room? And the reason is that Christianity has long summarized the Bible's teachings about who Jesus is by saying that Christ is God's true Son who assumed human nature in his incarnation. Our creeds and confessions are plain on this issue, and and at least, at least, ministers need to be aware of, of this basic Christian teaching. Jesus is one divine person who has a divine nature as God's only begotten Son and assumed a true human nature in order to redeem us. So he is one person having two natures. Now, far from, even though that's, that's a dense thing to say, it's far from speculative as we see it right here in Philippians 2. In verses 6 to 8, Paul explained what it was like for the eternal Son of God to take on a human nature. Paul tells us that Christ was, uh, as we know him in the incarnation, well, that he has two forms. In verse 6, Christ was in the form of God, which entailed equality with God. And in light of our doctrine of the Trinity, we know that this equality is that the person of the Son is equally God with Father and Spirit. And so there's the Son's first form, his natural form, that he's divine. Namely, the person of the Son has always and eternally had a divine nature. Now, the language that we have used for this side of our point is that uh, according to his deity, Christ is God's only begotten son, which comes from John 1.14. We mean that the son has uh, eternally, and we, and we should like pause for, for just a second to think about that, because uh, eternally means, it, it doesn't mean uh, everlasting. There is a difference between those two words. Uh, eternal means without time at all. Everlasting means goes on forever. Eternal means it doesn't have any time. There is no beginning. And so the Son has eternally come forth from the Father. This relationship is called eternal generation, that the person of the Son has always been like that, always been coming forth from the Father's person within the divine essence. And this divine person having, and I keep emphasizing divine person, in fact, because that was one of the other questions in that presbytery exam, uh, is Jesus a divine person? And he didn't know the answer to that either. But, But you would know now if that happened at your presbytery exam. This divine person having 
an eternal and natural relationship to the Father and Spirit within the Godhead than commonly shares in divine nature with Father and Spirit. So that's, that's been just trying to hit you with a lot of grammar. I don't understand it all. You, you don't. None of us can. But that's, that's the way that we've spoken across the centuries about this truth. And this eternal Son stepped into history for our redemption by becoming incarnate, meaning taking on another nature, another form. In verse 7, we have a statement paralleling Christ's identity as eternal God, saying that Christ took on the form of a servant. Now, we actually don't have to wonder what Paul meant by form of a servant, because he he told us it meant being born in the likeness of man. That's what it means to be a human, is to be God's servant. And so this, this second form that Jesus took was ours. He had the form of God always and eternally. And now he has our form. And one of the things to point out is that if Jesus was truly a servant, which few doubt, even outside our faith, having truly human form, well, kind of the other side of that is he was truly God. And we can latch on to both. Jesus has a divine nature and he has a human nature. In the same way that he is everything that it means to be God, well, he took upon himself a true human nature, assuming everything that it is required to be truly human. He took on a human soul, a human mind, coming with human emotions and, and human limitations according to his human nature. He ate food and he slept because... Well, according to his humanity, he needed nourishment and energy. The Son's incarnation requires the doctrine of Christ's two natures. Two natures. That brings us to our our next point. Nurture. Nurture. Uh, So, we've thought about one of the deepest truths that we have ingrained in our faith. Who is the person, Jesus Christ? And the practical lesson, because we started on the note of pragmatism, uh, the practical lesson from this doctrine is that we learn humility. It's I, I think it's profoundly striking that perhaps... I mean, arguably, at least, some of Paul's deepest reflections on Christ's two natures, on some of the most unfathomable mysteries we have, is set within an ethical exhortation. So he doesn't see these things as disconnected. 
In other words, real practicalities, real ones in the Christian life are grounded in the deepest theology. And so when we want to ask the real practical questions, well, it needs to grow out of our richest understanding of our faith. I mean, look at verses 1 to 5. There, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. First sort of aspect of the ethical exhortation, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Second emphasis, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, that's a big sort of uh, exhortation, admonishment. And Paul knows it. And he knows that one of the big questions that, are going to come, that is going to come out of that is, how do I do it? And so he tells us, have this mind among yourselves. And so then we're asking, okay, which mind? Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did all the things that we just considered. The mind that we are to have in Christ is the mind of others-centered humility. We easily drift towards feeling entitled, sometimes even in the church, it happens. Whether that be with the church as such or with our brothers and sisters in the church, we can sort of think that things ought to be our way. We think, and in wider life, we think our preferences, our method, our decor, our songs, our tunes, our demeanor, our default settings for life ought to be center stage for everybody. Even if we get ongoing care, we can, we can get kind of bent out of shape the first time that things don't pan out how we want or, or one of our friends doesn't predict what we wanted them to do and and respond in kind before we shared with them what we might need. We easily impose our ill feelings on friends, family, church members around us because life hasn't gone the way we wanted. And they ought to just know and rush in to fix it the way we think they ought to. We, we do have this propensity to get wrapped in ourselves, happy to receive grace, and sometimes forgetting to give grace. And God the Son charted a very different course. Instead of insisting on his rights, that he always had as, as a person equal in the Godhead. Well, instead of insisting on those, he made himself nothing by taking on a servant's form as an act of obedience, even unto death. Although Christ 
owed no sort of submission or obedience to anyone after the form of God, because God doesn't have to obey. God is to be obeyed. Despite that, he willingly accepted a mission to benefit others. And his equality with the Father did not prevent him from becoming obedient to the Father. And so Jesus, though equally God, accepted this task to take servant's form and become the obedient servant, even unto death on the cross. Now that's a summary of the gospel events. And what we see there is that the gospel logic lays the axe to the root of our entitlement. And then it salts and burns whatever remains. God the Son, above all, had true entitlement, but laid it aside to give grace to others. And the beauty of that is that that all of us focused on others, that if all of us focused on others rather than ourselves, well... At the end of the day, we wouldn't have to worry about our own needs because someone else would be caring for them. And so the the logic of the gospel is nurture for humility. And that's a beautiful thing. And it brings us to our final point. Nourish. Nourish. Because So the last thing that we just want to think about here is that the gospel not only nurtures, that provides a, a seedbed for humility, but it feeds humility. Christ's incarnation not only uh, gives us uh, implied instructions for how to live the Christian life, well, Christ enables the Christian life. So, he doesn't just give you a to-do list. He's with us. And all that he gives us to do. The the gospel logic of humility grows from how Jesus Christ came to save his people from our sins. From eternity, God the Son has been eternally begotten from the Father. And he alone is God's natural Son. His only begotten Son in the Godhead. According to his deity, He is as much the Lord over us as is the Father. He has a natural right to be our Lord as God the Son. Now the Heidelberg Catechism, question 33, asks, Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? You see the question, the gospel says you're a child of God. And so they're asking, why is it important to call Christ the Son of God? And the answer is, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted by God, by grace, for Christ's sake. 
The incarnation is the gospel announcement that God the Son became man. As the Nicene Creed says, for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. As man, Jesus endured the humiliation of death, even the cursed cross, which brought about his exaltation and our salvation. It's interesting, in, in verses 10 and 11, Paul quoted uh, Isaiah 45, verses 23 and, and 25, which is interesting because in those verses, God said, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And note that God is saying this. This is really important. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. God swore an oath that every knee would bow to him. And every tongue confess that he is the Lord. And as Philippians 2 records, when God the Father exalted Christ above every name, people are bowing to God. Because, well, Christ is God. As we've seen spelled out here. Verse 25 says that in in Isaiah 45, says that the people of God will give glory to this exalted God because they have been justified by God, declared righteous by Him and put in a right relationship with Him, which is, of course, exactly what Jesus did for us. Because of Christ's obedience unto death, He received two benefits. Exaltation to the name above every other name, which we can kind of clarify and see is pretty obvious, is the name of God. The name he always had is reinstated as known to be his. So he receives the benefit of exaltation and the benefit of a justified people. And what's interesting is one of those things he had already and one of those things he got for others. And so Jesus is naturally the Lord as God, but obtained a a new aspect of lordship through his exaltation in his incarnate human nature. Namely, lordship over death by saving us. He reigns as God and he reigns as the saving mediator. Heidelberg 34 asks, why do we call him our Lord? Explaining, because he has redeemed us, both body and soul, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and has delivered us from the power of the devil. And I think this is one of those great lines. And thus, has made us his 
own property. He owns you because he bought you. Because he's the risen Savior. Jesus Christ is our Lord by nature because he made us. And in that role, well, he would need to consign us to everlasting condemnation because of our sin. But Christ is also our Lord by redemption because we were bought with a price. Namely, his life and his death in our nature. And so the risen Christ is Lord because we belong to him by creation and by salvation. And we can grow in our humility to be others-centered because, because the Son forgot himself for our sake and works the power of resurrection life in those who belong to him, so that we become more and more like him. The beauty of the gospel is that for those who are prideful, those who love the world and its false glory, for us, God the Son of human nature, God the Son assumed a human nature, so that he could live and die in our place. The gospel is that despite our failures to be like Christ, he gave himself for us. It may seem overwhelming to think about that first exhortation, to think about how much we are asked to love others and be concerned with them more than with ourselves. But Christ didn't only cover the penalty of your sin, but also came to crush the power of your sin. We have the Spirit to enable us to grow in godliness. His Spirit will not let sin or selfishness reign as the master of our heart, because we worship God because he's justified the ungodly, and we worship Christ Because he embodied humility unto our salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we see that the most astounding truths often come with the most practical ramifications. We see that as we think about God the Son being eternally begotten, being eternally generated from your person in the Godhead, well, that is a gospel truth, because if it weren't for that uh, eternal identity of the Son, well, he couldn't have taken our nature for us. And so we're glad that Christ is one divine person in two natures, and that There is this exhortation to humility. We're glad even for this exhortation. Because this exhortation to humility teaches us the shape of the gospel. That Christ is your son. Who gave up all the things upon which he could have insisted. To benefit others. And we know that we are those others. Those who belong to you.
because we were bought with a price. And we pray that our hearts are full, knowing that even though we rebelled against you, you wanted us enough that you gave your only begotten son that you could have us back. And so we pray that you help us to learn that, to learn the humility uh, exhorted to us in this passage, and to learn to bring them together that we don't set these things in opposition. We pray it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. People of God, would you stand to receive your benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this day and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen. Good to be with you today.